so uh, everyone, uh, it is my absolute pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Jonathan Johnson, uh, who is currently at uh, CBS Sports and Eurosport, uh, but has had a glittered career as a freelance journalist uh, based in Paris, uh, working uh, for ESPN, uh, Associated Press, uh, Bleacher, and many, many more. Uh, over that time, his uh, closest associations have been with PSG-related work, uh, most notable, and uh, he's done his freelance uh, commentary, writing, video, and again, many, many more uh, media. Uh, first question, Jonathan, um, how are you? I've seen um, some parts of France uh, going into lockdown again. Is, is that affecting you? Um, yes. Well, uh, thanks for inviting me, first of all. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a strange, it's a strange situation in uh in France, yes, uh, you know, we do have the lockdown, um, but it's been sort of eased and, and pushed back by an hour, but all the shops have been closed pretty much, except for the absolute essentials. So it's, um, yeah, it's quite limiting. Uh, and obviously everyone's a bit frustrated with it, uh, you know, a bit bored of it now. It's been, a, you know, more than a year. So, uh, you know, everyone's just really looking forward to, uh, to it being over. No, uh, I think uh, everyone is. Uh, are you doing any work this week with the uh, France national team? Um, Deschamps with another notoriously uh, stubborn uh, squad selection, which I've seen uh, annoying few, a few people. Yeah, well, I was there at Stade de France for the match against Ukraine, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't uh, wasn't a good performance, um, and. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of criticism for, for Deschamps because he's not the most experimental of coaches uh, and France is blessed with so much, you know, uh, good young talent. It's, uh, yeah, kind of feels like <clears throat> they're not really tapping into their potential a lot of the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can uh, I can see that. Um, I'm going to take a sort of um, semi-chronological uh, approach to combo. Uh, if that's all right. Um, so starting off uh, in your youth, did you have a long-term ambition of being a journalist in school? Uh, and did your was your choice of history and journalism as, as a degree, you know, pretty conscious? Well, you know, obviously my dream growing up, uh, you know, like for the majority of, uh, you know, guys and, and girls my age, was to become a professional footballer. And when you realise that you're not going to make the grade, um, I wanted to find some way that I could stay close to football, you know, to keep that passion going. Uh, and journalism seemed like the right choice for me. It's something that I've been doing from a young age. Uh, I remember my family liked to, to tell people that I was writing match reports, film reviews, uh, you know, this this sort of thing from you know quite a quite a young age. Uh, and you know, just sort of developed from there. Really, the the choice of studying history with journalism. Uh, I was quite limited uh, in the universities I could go to in and around London, uh, you know, that would enable me to study what was my strongest subject history, uh, you know, but also, you know, do a bit of journalism uh, on the side, uh, you know, and also keep me within range of uh, places that I started doing work experience with, uh, like the uh, Daily Express newspaper. So, you know, all of that kind of factored into uh, my uh, my thinking and I had to wait for uh, the course to start up uh, at Hertfordshire before I could actually go. So I actually went a year after my friends. Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I did see um, uh, the Daily Express uh, experience on your LinkedIn. And I saw that you said you were um, covering uh, West Ham uh, in 2006, or at least did a few things related to West Ham. Was it fun to cover them then? Because this was obviously just after the Tevez and Mascherano uh, transfer saga. Yeah, when I was when I mentioned West Ham, it was more going to a couple of press conferences. Uh, I think Alan Kirbishley was the was the coach at that time. Uh, it wasn't just West Ham. I got to see a couple of uh, different clubs up close, uh, Fulham as well. Uh, and it's, you know, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time and obviously, you know, sort of one of my first experiences of actually going to sort of uh, a football club's training ground, uh, you know, and getting to speak to, to somebody like a manager, uh, you know, and, and sort of get a feel for, for that journalistic environment. Yeah. And um, after I saw that you, um, uh, as one of your first uh, postgrad uh, gigs, you ended up as an assistant producer. 
uh, for Sky Sports. Was there a lot of like organ organization qualities you needed in that role, or was it mainly like behind the scenes stuff, or uh, what, what was that experience like? I didn't just walk into uh, the role of uh, assistant producer at Sky Sports. Uh, that was sort of the culmination of many years of work. Basically, I started out uh, as a runner with Sky uh, during my work experience, impressed enough to be kept on. Um, and although I enjoyed seeing the different sports that I was doing, uh, you know, like a bit of golf, a bit of tennis, uh, you know, even a bit of uh, fishing. Uh, you know, my my passion was for football, and I really wanted to get on one of the the football teams. So, I asked if I could be sort of assigned to to one of the football shows, uh, and there just happened to be an opening uh, at Soccer Saturday. So, I quickly became a member of the team there. Um, you know, sort of worked my way up from there, sort of being a runner, sorting out the the contracts. Uh, you know, making sure the guests sign them, that sort of thing, making teas, coffees, getting food orders. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sort of worked my way up from there. I was in charge of the stats that went out on the graphics, uh, you know, for, for quite a while. Uh, and then eventually, you know, sort of started to cut my teeth with bits of uh, video content, uh, you know, doing the occasional uh, interview as well. Uh, you know, so it was sort of maybe about two and a half years, so about halfway through my five years at, uh, at Sky that I started really doing the, you know, doing the, the video content uh, aspect of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, watching Soccer Saturday now and even well, for the last 10 years, uh, it's such a, you know, slick show to watch and, you know, the goal that's coming through. Is it, you know, carnage behind the scenes or, you know, people, is, is it quite a slick operation? Uh, I mean, I don't know what it would be like now. I mean, I've gone back and visited a couple of times and caught up with old colleagues, but I don't know, uh, you know, sort of if they have ways of making the, the operation easier uh, compared to how it was when I was there. I mean, it was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty mad uh, doing the job that I was doing with checking all of the, <clears throat> the details going out on the graphics. <clears throat> Uh, and, you know, the the job of being producer is also quite demanding as well. Uh, you know, they obviously, you know, they there was a strong chemistry that had been built up over a number of years. Uh, but my understanding is that it's, you know, quite a new team now um, compared to the one that I worked with. You know, a lot of the, the guests have, have moved on. I think only Paul Merson uh, and Jeff Stelling remain. Uh, you know, some of the older guys have uh, have, have, have been moved on. And, uh, you know, I think its success was born out of the fact that everybody was so comfortable uh, around each other. You know, it, it, it you know, those kind of shows, the certain parts were like scripted, certain sections. But then, you know, a lot of the, the show, you know, would just write its own script, you know, because of the chemistry between uh, Jeff and the guests, uh, you know, and the producer would be, you know, quite happy to to let them riff uh, for as long as uh, as long as they wanted on uh, on certain topics. So you know, I think it's uh, if if it looked slick uh, from the outside, it's uh, you know because uh, you know you had some some very good, very professional people uh, you know who've been doing it a long time and were very familiar with each other. I, I think that it was probably uh, you know madness when uh, when they first started out uh, before I joined. Yeah, no, it's it's the key to everything having good relations. Um, uh, also, another one of your early gigs was um, covering uh, the San Jose earthquakes uh, on a trip uh, to London. That was that's a really niche. Uh, did you enjoy, you know, covering something that um, niche? And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was exciting for me. Uh, I I mean, I, I always knew that I wanted to be a foreign football correspondent. I didn't want yeah. to sort of just, you know, stay with, uh, you know, Premier League teams. Uh, I had the passion for French football uh, after being a season ticket holder when I lived in Paris the first time. Uh, and uh, I saw the potential for there to be opportunities in Major League Soccer. So I got in touch with them and started doing uh, you know, bits and pieces. And, you know, one of the, the things that they wanted me to do was follow uh, San Jose when they came over for one of their pre-seasons. So that's how I ended up doing that gig. And yeah, it was, you know, it's very interesting at that time. I mean, a major league soccer is a developing league, uh, but at that time it was, you know, quite far behind where it is now. Uh, you know, there weren't any real major stars in, the, in, in that team. So I think the thing that was really good about that was that they were, 
all uh, so accessible. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to get that sort of access with a, a Premier League club or even a you know, sort of medium-sized uh, European club. No, absolutely. And um, it was also in around 2011-2012 uh, time, I believe, you started doing the French Football Weekly pod and, you know, starting to develop a focus on Ligue 1. Was it a really fun time to start properly covering Ligue 1? Because you have Montpellier's title win in 2011 and then PSG really becoming a force. Um, so, yeah, was it an exciting time to cover Ligue 1? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I... Um, uh... Everything changed for me in uh, 2011 because that's when I decided to leave uh, Sky and leave London uh, and return to Paris with the idea, with the hope of establishing myself sort of within 18 months. Uh, you know, it took around about 12 for the first real sort of paid journalistic opportunities to come in. Uh, you know, but one of the things that I tried to launch, you know, to make people... Uh, you know, sort of more aware of uh, my my capabilities as a, as a journalist was uh, French Football Weekly. So yeah, it was a it was a really exciting time to be covering French football. Obviously, the the Qatari takeover at PSG was very new in uh, 2011. Uh, Montpellier winning in 2012 was uh, you know was good in in many ways. Uh, you know, but it also uh, delayed the the PSG project getting off the ground uh, a little bit, but you know, had they not lost the the title to Montpellier that season, they might not have gone out and signed the likes of Thiago Silva and Zlatan Ibrahimovic. You know, that summer of of 2012 was when it really changed. That's you know, sort of when PSG started making moves that really made them a, a continental giant, and you know, that's when things started to get really interesting. So uh, I've I've always been a fan and very passionate about Liga. Uh, uh, but it was sort of more interesting for people from the outside. Uh, you know, once PSG managed to bring these kind of players in, uh, you know, especially when uh, they'd be given a run for their money by some of the French teams. No, absolutely. Um, I, I remember my uh, interest in Ligue 1 really started to kick off at that time as well. Um, and then also in 2013, I think you did your first uh, coverage of uh, an African Cup of Nations when um, uh, Nigeria were really impressive and Burkina Faso had that. Uh, a really uh, fun run, an unexpected run to a final. Did you enjoy covering uh, a tournament outside of Europe and, you know, uh, widening uh, the horizon a little bit? Um, and obviously there's a large contingent of Ligue 1 players playing in the tournament as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, I think I was presented with the opportunity because obviously the interest in it in a French-speaking country is so, so big, so high, uh, you know, that they... You know there are certain TV channels based here in Paris that, that that need to show it. So yeah, there was a really interesting experience for me. I think the thing that I liked the most about it was a lot of my commentary gigs would just be me sat in front of a screen commentating a match, uh, like the the Belgian football, the Greek football, the the French third tier, uh, you know, and French basketball as well. That sort of thing I, I'd always done on my own. But to do this with a co-commentator, uh, you know, an ex-player as well, you know, would, uh, was was really, you know, quite valuable for me. And, uh, you know, yeah, it was, you know, just happened to be a very good tournament uh, to cover with a lot of exciting teams, players, uh, you know, and, and sort of unexpected successes. So, no, it was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good memory for, for me. I, to be honest, of all the things that I do uh, in my work, commentary is probably not one of my favorites but when i'm doing something like that uh, you know with somebody who's also very passionate about the, the the match or the tournament that we're covering that makes it so much easier and more enjoyable how long does it usually uh, take to prep uh, for a commentary gig because you have to write down maybe like little uh, quirky stats about the individual players and the teams and such uh, so so yeah uh, how long is usually the prep for a commentary gig? Well, it'll take a couple of hours at first, especially if you're writing your first sort of uh, like stats packs, uh, you know, but there are some very good resources out there, uh, very helpful, uh, you know, and I think that, you know, once you've done a few matches as well, you can delve back into the, the, the content that you've done before, change it a little bit. I mean, what I'd always do is I'd always write uh, a little bit of a, an intro, uh, you know, just so that I had something to, to go on and to sort of, you know, launch me into the match. Uh, and then, you know, I find myself, you know, adding some of the, 
the bits uh, of information that I'd uh, got written down uh, at various points during the match whenever somebody did something, you know, if they were on the ball or if they picked up a booking or they'd gotten injured or something like that, you know, whenever there was a break in play, uh, you know, I'd try to use that to, you know, to, to bring the information that I'd got written down, uh, you know, into, into my commentary. But I'd say, you know, when you're first starting out, say if it's uh, the first match in a new league, It'll take a couple of hours, but after that, maybe an hour, hour and a half, uh, you know, and it, it gets faster and faster, uh, you know, the, the more that you're doing it. Yeah, no, no, that's, as I say, case with everything. Um, and then in the early uh, 2010s, obviously, you start to do a lot more work with uh, PSG. Um, and Laurent Blanc uh, comes in in 2013 as PSG manager, I believe. Um, what was he like to deal with as a manager? Because he has a... He has at least a public perception of being a fairly prickly uh, character. Is that fair or is he, you know, as I say, good to deal with when uh, you get to know him? No, I'd say, I'd say that that's fair. Um, he does have a dry sense of humour, which, you know, sometimes comes across well, sometimes doesn't. Uh, you know, he does tend to have a short temper, uh, especially if he was under a bit of pressure. But, you know, overall... Um, I'd say that there, there were never any uh, issues with uh, with with me. I, you know, I always found him uh, quite engaging. He'd be quite honest uh, in a lot of his answers. You know, if he was asked to give an appraisal of a player or somebody's situation, like Javier, for example, who was you know quite troublesome at that time, uh, you know, he wouldn't hold back. He'd be he'd be, he'd be very uh, forthright in his uh, in his opinions. Um, you know, and I think he was he was the right man for PSG uh, at the at the right time. Did you manage to develop a good individual rapport with any uh, specific players at the time? Uh, were any individual players really uh, fun to interview? I mean, I've had um, you know good yeah. relationships with uh, players through their agents over the years. Javier Pastore, um, Gregory Van der Veel. Uh, you know, Van der Veel and I did a fun interview for a publication called Green Soccer Journal. Uh, and although that's now defunct, uh, you know, I still have the copies of that interview. And that's, you know, that was quite cool. Uh, that was just basically a day spent in a warehouse in Paris, uh, you know, him trying on a bunch of different clients, doing a fashion shoot. And then him and I just talking about, obviously talking about football, but talking a lot about culture as well. Sort of his journey, uh, you know, from the suburbs of, uh, of Amsterdam. Uh, you know, coming through the the fabled Ajax Youth Academy, uh, you know, sort of breaking into uh, uh, the the Dutch national team, and then you know making it to a, a club like PSG. Uh, you know, so that that was really that was really interesting, and he was probably one of the players I got to know better uh, over the years. But the thing that I would say, and I think it's the same at you know the majority of clubs in Europe these days. Players are very uh, inaccessible. Uh, same goes for, for coaches. You know, they sort of live in a, in a bubble, uh, you know, and the club probably won't do that much to facilitate you speaking with them. Sort of even as a, even as a publication like uh, CBS, uh, you know, it's quite hard to get interviews or harder to get interviews these days than it was before because a lot of clubs would prefer to do their own stuff in-house because it enables them to control the, the contents more easily. Yeah, I've seen that because there's like been a growing uh, uh, trend of like uh, individual clubs making like YouTube content of like fun Q and A's and stuff like that, as you say. So yeah, yeah, and it's 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 uh, it's bred this annoying habit as well of clubs saying, "Oh, we've got an exclusive with one of our own players," which is kind of a bit ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it definitely. Is. Um, we did your French uh, language skills really pick up uh, by like. 2012, 2013, when would you say you, you really mastered it? Yeah, I'd, I'd say probably sort of sometime between 2012, 2015. The one thing that I would say um, is that I never had a French lesson uh, in my life yeah. at school. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was just incompatible for me when I was at the British school um, to do French at the same time as the other subjects that I was studying. Uh, so I wasn't actually able to bring on my French as much as I wanted in those first three years that I that I lived in Paris uh, in the early 2000s. So it really, really came on the the second time, sort of after 2012. And you know, now I find myself quite immersed in uh, in French culture, which is uh, cool. I have a French girlfriend, French dog. Uh, you know, about to buy property in uh, in Paris as well. So it's um, 
you know, it's been, yeah, it's been a real full cultural uh, immersion over the years. No, that's great. That's, that's, that's what it's all about when you, when you live in a, in a foreign city. Um, and uh, during that time, did you also start to develop uh, contacts for stuff like transfer gossip? Um, uh, and yeah, sort of go into that sphere of football writing as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's grown in importance over the years. Um, and I think it depends on the nature of the contacts that you have. You know, there can be some contacts at a club if you have a particularly good relationship, you can get a steer on a certain story. Uh, you know, or, you know, sort of how true uh, certain rumours are. Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's not one of my favourite things to write about. And I'm quite grateful mm. that at CBS we have somebody who's a transfer specialist in Fabrizio Romano who takes care of a lot of our transfer-related content. Uh, you know, I find that the clamour for that sort of stuff is pretty irritating i mean the odd transfer story don't get me wrong is, is good it's especially useful if you're you know providing like a profile of a player that nobody really knows that much about but you know just sort of transfer gossip for the sake of it that really uh, really does frustrate me so uh, uh you know i when i when i do break uh, some transfer information i try to make it you know something new that people haven't done or heard um before you know something that actually you know, moves the story on uh, as opposed to just saying the same thing that somebody else has already said, just in a different way. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Fabrizio Romano is the, the best, at least. Uh, well, uh, on, on, on Twitter, he's seen as the best. Um, yeah, he, he is, and he has a, you know, a wide range of contacts, which is really impressive. Uh, but the, the thing that I would say about that is uh, Fabrizio doesn't sleep. Uh, you know, he has, he's constantly <laughs> in contact with uh, so many different people. I really, uh, I really pity him during the, the transfer windows because he's so overworked uh, during those periods. But uh, no, he's a, you know, he's a great guy, uh, you know, very well connected. Uh, you know, and if I ever hear something, uh, I always run it past him as well, just to sort of make sure it's in line with what he's hearing. Yeah. Um, and uh during, also during that time, um, did you get to cover PSG in their uh, away trips in the Champions League, like their 2-2 their draw at Stamford Bridge in 2015, which knocked um, Mourinho's Chelsea out of the Champions League? Was that fun, uh, following PSG? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, my association with PSG as a journalist has been one big adventure, um, you know, and it still is. I still do Champions League away days uh, where possible. Obviously, it's not easy with COVID at the moment. But um, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen some great games over the years. Uh, I was there for that 2-2 at Stamford Bridge. Uh, you know, I, I was there as well when PSG won at Stamford Bridge uh, and advanced. Uh, I was also there when Chelsea knocked PSG out at Stamford Bridge. I was there at uh, Camp Nou for Remontada. Uh, you know, and I've seen PSG go to places like uh, Belgrade to play Red Star. Um, Dortmund was, uh, was really cool, Naples. Uh, you know, so I've been to, you know, quite a few interesting venues uh, over the years. Uh, Club Brugge as well in Belgium. Uh, that was that was a really cool away day. So, you know, that's sort of one of the more rewarding aspects of my job, uh, you know, because it can be quite demanding doing the work, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a foreign environment where you're not necessarily sure you're going to have, you know, sort of the right Wi-Fi connection, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the actual experience of being there, seeing a new atmosphere is uh is really really cool and it's one of the things that i like the most uh about uh about the job you know i've been to great stadiums you know places like santiago bernabeu over the years uh you know the kind of places that when i was a kid watching football on tv i dreamed about going to one day so you know for me it was really living the dream uh, you know doing this a lot of time so for the gate for, for the uh, for the remontada, were you like doing live updates or a match report at the end? Because if it was a match report at the end, that must have been a nightmare to continually change uh, the narrative. Yeah, I mean, because I, I was working for ESPN, I didn't actually do as much sort of match report kind of stuff. Uh, we normally left that to somebody like Associated Press, uh, you know, so the copy would come in and then that would get uh, published. Instead, we'd do sort of the analysis, like player ratings, yeah. uh, you know, sort of a uh, reaction piece uh, to what had happened. Uh, 
you know, I think I was doing video hits as well uh, that night. So yeah, obviously highly dramatic, uh, you know, quite upsetting for a lot of people that I was there with, my, myself included, you know, because obviously we, we wanted to see PSG advance and uh, uh, not only was it a disappointing performance, you know, there were aspects of it that were quite controversial as well. So it was, uh, you know, that was probably one of the more negative experiences in my journalistic career, but also at the same time, you know, quite valuable. Uh, you know, I don't think you could find many more scenarios that, that you know, that could be sort of as crushing uh, to, a, you know, to, a, to a massive dream project like PSG's uh, than that sort of defeat. No, I, I think, especially after PSG got the away goal, like they're going through, I think it's probably one of the most crushing defeats in Champions League history, if not the. I also remember um, Julien Laurent had a bit of a meltdown on um, uh, the BT Sport live score um, show <laughs> that night because um, I was uh, watching at home. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I really, I thought that when PSG scored, uh, that would be it. Uh, and obviously, they had the penalty shout that was rejected. Yeah. as well um, you know but also at the same time without remontada psg wouldn't have neymar today you know it was neymar because of neymar that barcelona managed to win that game he got two of the three late goals and then set up the third that he didn't score uh and you know it was at that moment when barca made messi the uh the, the sort of figurehead of the comeback despite the fact that it was neymar who was largely responsible for it on the pitch uh and it was at that moment because of that that uh you know, Neymar's, you know, started to really seriously consider moving elsewhere. And, you know, we all know what happened a couple of months later uh, when PSG, uh, you know, activated his minimum fee release clause uh, and brought him to Paris. Uh, yeah, uh, just rewinding uh, a bit to when you talked about doing uh, work on the Greek League, the, the Belgian League, the Portuguese League. Um, did you, like, have to divide up your week to, like, um, oh, I'm going to do my research on the Portuguese league here, the Belgian league here, or does it kind of come all in one uh, massive waterfall of information? Yeah, do, do you know what? My weeks at that time were pretty messy. Uh, I was doing some really awful uh, Eurosport shifts a lot of the time. I mean, the, the Eurosport shifts, when I do them now, uh, are much more concise. Uh, they don't last as uh, half as long as they used to do uh, because, for example, a morning shift... Uh, used to start around 3 a.m. and go all the way through to midday with 3.20 with three twenty minute uh, bulletins to do. Uh, you know, and quite often I find myself between doing those bulletins, preparing for a commentary, because if I was doing the shift on, say, the, the Sunday morning, uh, I'd then be going to the other studio uh, on the other side of Paris to go and do the, the commentary for the Belgian or the Greek game. So quite often my prep will be done sort of while I'm working on something else. I, I try and combine the two and, you know, just be confident in my ability to uh, to get things prepared in time for, uh, uh, you know, for, for me to be able to be ready to do uh, both things. Yeah, um, I... Uh... I remember those uh, morning bulletins, especially as a kid, um, because my parents uh, wouldn't allow me to stay up for the midweek Champions League games or midweek, uh, even, I don't know, maybe a League Cup game or something. So I always used to remember waking up at 7am uh, uh, to, to watch the, uh, the bulletins uh, come in. It was, it was good fun. And if you... Well, uh, so it's, not, it's nice to know that people do get up, uh, you know, to, to watch that. It's quite reassuring because when you're doing it, it kind of feels like... Uh, you know, there's probably not that many people tuning in to, to see the work that you've done. Uh, the, the funny thing about the, the Eurosport stuff is, uh, you know, the places that actually uh, tune in the most, uh, you know, to, the, to those services, you know, they come, the, the, the strongest followings come from the most unexpected of places. Like, for example, Eurosport has a really strong following in Finland because they cover a lot of uh, winter sports. So a lot of our bulletins would actually be watched heavily by Scandinavian countries where they speak, uh, you know, very good English. So yeah. that, was, uh, that, that was always quite, uh, quite an eye-opener uh, for me when I was uh, doing those. Yeah, I, I, I often, um, if like I, I was I nothing on and I was channel flicking through the TV, and I came across Eurosport. Eurosport always seemed to have some winter sports on, either like a biathlon uh, or some uh, cross-country skiing or something, which was um, 
Yeah, winter winter sports, cycling. Uh, they, you know, they've always been big uh, on those, and uh, I know that uh, a lot of people love to watch Eurosports coverage of the cycling because it's, uh, you know, it's such good quality. And that uh, bulletin was especially important, I'd say, before like 2014, 2015, 2016, when like everyone started to get smartphones, because that was like the best source of information there was, definitely for like kids like me, who, you know, didn't have a laptop or a phone, um, you know, and CFAX was kind of a thing of the past by, by then. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, it was it was very good stuff. Um, also talking about following uh, teams, Abroad. Uh, how much work have you done uh, with the French national team in covering them at the various tournaments and qualifiers? Yeah, a fair bit. Uh, you know, obviously we had the Euros in uh, in France in 2016. Uh, you know, and I've followed them to uh, you know a few different tournaments or at least games in uh, in a few different tournaments. Uh, you know, sometimes I've done that work from a distance. Sometimes I've been there. Uh, you know. On site, uh, I was supposed to be covering one of the Euro matches uh, for ESPN before I changed job. Uh, we're still waiting for the final details of the tournament uh, before we know exactly what we're going to be covering for, for CBS. So, you know, we'll see what happens in terms of the upcoming Euro. But uh, no, I've, I've done a fair bit of work with uh, France over the years. It's always uh, a pleasure to go out into the into the countryside to Clairefontaine, which is, you know, always a great experience, you know, the, the home of excellence for, for French football. And, um, you know, I've been able to interview some guys over the years. Uh, you know, I was sort of interviewing uh, Luca Dean before, uh, you know, he came to the Premier League while well, he was still playing for PSG at this point. Uh, and obviously then went to Roma, Barcelona and then to, to Everton. Uh, you know, I get on quite well with him and, uh, and and his agents. So, you know, to be able to go to Clairefontaine and speak to guys like that, uh, you know, the, the French national team would normally make a few players available, uh, you know, on like a media day where you can turn up and, and interview two or three players and, and get a bunch of quotes at the beginning of a, uh, a national squad meetup. Yeah, because um, that, that's become a growing phenomenon because I know since Southgate's taken over as England manager, um, there's now massive media days at St George's Park where like players from the 21s, women's team, seniors, um, all, yeah, uh, go for a media day. So that should be fun. Is Clairefontaine a really like uh, up to date, uh, you know, a state of the art uh, place? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously very well equipped. I mean, I wouldn't say it's absolutely state of the art, but it is very, <clears throat> it is very plush. Uh, I'd, I'd say that the word that I would use to describe it the most is serene. It's very disconnected from, from everything. It's sort of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, and it's the, the perfect place for, for the players to go and retreat. In fact, there was a, a story uh, earlier this week before the Ukraine match where the France players were staying in a hotel and they had to move out and, and go back to Clairefontaine to stay because uh, some of the hotel staff members had tested positive for, for COVID. And I was surprised that they weren't staying at Clairefontaine uh, to start with, considering that they have the facilities uh, there to do that. It's, you know, it's almost like a, a university campus uh, kind of thing where, you know, you have enough rooms for the players of, uh, of the different teams, uh, of different age groups. Yeah. Uh, also with France, did you go out to any of the games in Russia? Uh, or did you? I did. I didn't. Uh, I I had hoped to, but um, no. I did most of my coverage for that uh, from the uh, you know from the comfort of my own home, which uh, which was a shame. It was sort of one of the more bitter moments uh, towards the end of my time with uh, with ESPN. It's it's also great to cover the tournament at home, though. Um, well, at least if you if you're in around the, the atmosphere, because um there's that famous quote um. I can't remember from who, but in referencing um, the Republic of Ireland at Italia 90, when he says, I, I miss, this journalist says, I missed Italia 90 by being in Italy um, for it. Um, so there's obviously that side to the coin as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, 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 you know, the cultural side of things like that, when you're staying somewhere over, over a period of time, uh, you know, that really it lends more... Um, 
than just you know when you go for like an away match uh you know and you're literally there for a number of hours and then and then heading home you know i think when you're on site for sort of weeks on end if not uh you know a month or so uh, it's it's really valuable you get a lot um from it in in cultural terms uh you know and there's there's some great um journalistic work that's been done over the years from people who have sort of followed a team uh you know whether it's an international team or a club team in fact one of my favorite pieces of uh football uh writing was the miracle of castel di sangra by joe mcginnis who's sadly passed away but it's a fantastic book and that really shows you the value of uh you know immersing yourself culturally uh you know over over a prolonged period of time no it's one of my favorite football books it's it's absolutely it's inverting the pyramid level uh essential reading uh in my opinion for any uh football fan coming up have your uh colleagues um for the french national team do they enjoy it do they enjoy covering it more now as opposed to the you know just car crash years in between 2006 and 2012 i mean i th- i think that they obviously enjoy the the success that the france are, are having at the moment uh you know, for for a lot of them, they weren't around uh, in 1998. They were, you know, just young like me, uh, you know, around 11 years old when that happened. So uh, they weren't able to appreciate it in a journalistic capacity. So, you know, yeah, they would have known, you know, the the quite traumatic events of, of South Africa, that sort of stuff. But, you know, now they're getting to enjoy uh, the, the, the success uh, that France uh, are experiencing under Deschamps. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say for me, it was uh, interesting to see the way that the French national team rebuilt itself, um, you know, qualifying for the 2014 World Cup and then developing from there. Um, I don't think it was that fun covering the French national team before then for a lot of people because the French public had really fallen out of love with the French national team. You know, they had uh, a lot of... Uh, trust issues uh, with the with with the players a lot of you know uh, the, there was no real mutual respect between the between the two uh, and you know now <clears throat> since Deschamps has come in there there is a real uh, ability for the public to uh, identify with this uh, with this group of players. Yeah, uh, Matt, Matt Spiro's um, done a really good new book. Uh, which I read over the summer on that journey from sort of 2006 to 2020. I actually also remember um, uh, watching the second leg of the France-Ukraine uh, playoff uh, for the 2014 World Cup. Um, my dad is, um, uh, he's an academic in um, Ukrainian studies. Um, so I've always had an affinity uh, for Ukraine and he has too. And uh, so that was, um, uh, I was especially uh, chastising. Yeah, I mean, it's one it's one of my favourite memories, that match, um, because it was one of the first France games that I was accredited to go to as a journalist, uh, you know, and to see a team fight back uh, like that, uh, you know, and qualify in such dramatic circumstances was, uh, yeah, it was really, really special. And it was also the turning point for uh, the feeling towards the, uh, the, the France squad from the public. You know, that's when the French players really sort of won back the respect uh, of their fans and it was also the the end of a number of players international careers because that was the the moment that Deschamps decided to uh, you know no no longer rely on some of the talented players with questionable personalities and just focus on the guys that he felt uh, you know could buy into the team uh, and squad ethic uh, you know I think that was a really important moment uh, for the French national team uh, Matt's a friend of mine uh, and I you know I'm a big fan of his book as well so I'll uh, I'll pass on the, the compliments. Yeah, good and deservedly so. Um, uh, what was it like when the um, Benzema uh, Valbuena uh, uh, story uh, came out in? Uh, was it in 2015? Uh, when yeah. That, that must your phone uh, <laughs> like crazy for that. Yeah, ir- irritating. Uh, you know, when something like that happens, you, you you're kind of hoping that you know there, there's going to be no unnecessary controversies and then when something like that blows up you know it generally tends to stick around for for quite a long time so yeah obviously it was um headline news in france for a while and, and still flares up uh, from time to time seeing as uh, you know there's still uh, you know ongoing legal proceedings relating to it 
but obviously, it's uh, you know, it was the end of the international careers for both uh, Valbuena and uh, and Benzema, which you know was was very disappointing because <clears throat> Benzema, as as prickly a character as he is, uh, you know, is a fantastic player, uh, great to watch. Uh, Valbuena as well, you know, he'd uh, really done well to sort of be one of the key figures uh, in Deschamps' rebuild of, uh, of France. You know, had a great uh, period sort of in and around the 2014 uh, World Cup when he took over from Franck Ribéry as like, you know, the main creative uh, element in the in the midfield. Um, you know, so it was obviously a shame to see his international career fizzle out like uh, like it did. No, no, it, it, it was from a, uh, a foreign perspective uh, as well. Um, but I also saw on your uh, LinkedIn that you've done various uh, TV appearances for Al Jazeera, CNN and uh, others. Uh, what, what were they for? Were they for uh, maybe like an interview on the Benzema scandal or <laughs> something like that? Yeah, occasion, occasionally it's that. I mean, sadly, uh, CNN seems to have a a habit of asking me to make an appearance when PSG have gone out of the Champions League. So I have like uh, my some friends of mine have made a collection over the years of me, uh, you know, sort of looking quite miserable the morning after PSG have crashed out of the Champions League to Barcelona, to Real Madrid, to Manchester United, uh, and uh, you know, to take uh, take pride uh, in in making sure that they have a picture each time I make a, a media appearance. Uh, that they can tune into where I'm talking about PSG and it's, uh, you know, it's less than flattering. But no, I mean, it's been a real mix of things. Uh, you know, Al Jazeera uh, would normally be something that's not necessarily related to what's happening on the pitch. Um, CNN was more sort of related to, to, to what had happened uh, on the pitch. And then, you know, the other appearances like Turkish TV, uh, that sort of stuff would be generally about a, a mixture, uh, you know, but normally it's something reasonably controversial. Yeah, no, I, I still remember that. Uh, that Man United exit in 2019 was just farcical. Um, I still remember the camera panning to um, Kimpembe's face after he realises that VAR has given the penalty and it's just like this. Uh, stone gold look. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a very, very bizarre experience uh you know there was a lot that went on that night uh that is difficult to explain uh really you know we'd sort of been told in the press area that alfonso Ariola would be starting in goal uh and then to see buffon sort of get the nods uh you know just an hour before kickoff people started to ask questions you know why there was the the change made late uh and then obviously you had uh, var uh in its infancy uh, and, and PSG just putting in a very disappointing performance and, you know, Manchester United sides uh, that didn't really have anything to lose, uh, you know, came and, and put in a very good performance uh, and managed to, to get a result, which, to be honest, they, they, they quite often managed to do against PSG because they won in the group stage earlier this season as well, despite the fact that PSG ended up going to Old Trafford and winning again like they did. Uh, a couple of seasons ago, it's almost like they're more comfortable when they play each other away from home than uh, when they're at home. Yeah. Um, are you confident for PSG this season in the Champions League? Um, I don't know if they're going to go all the way. Um, I'm, and I'm also probably in the minority uh, in that I think that they can actually knock out Bayern. Um, I think it's going to be a tall. I think it's going to be a tall order for them to get past both Bayern and City, assuming that City get past Dortmund. But, you know, there are a lot of moving parts to, to you know, to all of the, the draws that have been made. They're not all quite as clear-cut as they maybe seem to be. You know, I think a lot of people are assuming that Chelsea will steamroll past Porto. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. We've seen City underestimate smaller sides uh, in the Champions League over the years, notably Lyon last season. So I think that Dortmund still have a chance there. Uh, and with Bayern, I mean, Bayern and PSG are very similar in that both have fantastic attacks and they're quite vulnerable in defence. Uh, Bayern's midfield, I'd argue, is, is stronger than PSG's. But, uh, you know, I, th I think Bayern's issue now is mental. It's, you know, they have every trophy in hand that they could possibly have. Uh, you know, and it's hard to keep a team winning, uh, you know, th at that same pace. Uh, you know, once you've won pretty much everything that there is available to you. So 
you know, I think that if PSG are hungry enough um, and, and apply themselves, they can replicate the sort of performance that we saw at Camp Now. I don't think Bar- uh, Bayern will allow themselves to be thrashed in the same way that Barca were in that first leg. Uh, and I do expect it to be closer over the over the two legs. But I think that PSG have a decent chance uh, of advancing uh, if they really apply themselves in both games. Uh, I agree. Um, one of the final PSG questions, I guess. Um, were you surprised when news of the Neymar transfer came through in the summer of 2017? Not really. Uh, you know, PSG needed to make a lot of changes. Uh, they'd struggled without that talismanic figure uh, since Latan Ibrahimovic moved on. So to see them go for, um, you know, somebody like a Neymar or an Mbappe wasn't really that much of a surprise. The big surprise was that they went for both of them, uh, you know, at the same time. And they managed to work out that deal where Mbappe arrived on loan uh, and then the transfer fee was, was made permanent <clears throat> sort of the following summer. Uh, but you know that was it was an exciting time, and it's something that PSG really had to do because the the project was going stale. No, it absolutely was. Um, at this minute, uh, I'll open it up. So, uh, Navaki, fellow chaps on my sports team, if you want to raise your hand or unmute yourself to ask a question, go for it. Um, but um, just a general question um, with. Uh, your life as a freelance journalist um, in the past, like, do you ha- did you have to be like always on your toes with emails and stuff? Is it being available uh, a lot of the time that's the key, maybe? I mean, as a freelancer, <clears throat> yeah, it's being available, making those contacts to start with. Uh, but once you once you earn somebody's trust and you sort of make it into the circle of uh, uh, you know people who can be potentially given jobs, uh, you know the the offers you know, come, come in, I, w- I wouldn't say thick thick and fast, but you have a regular stream of sort of proposals like, you know, do you want to do this morning shift at uh, Eurosport or, you know, this match at uh, wherever it might have been, it was Mashin Spot at the time. <clears throat> so it's, I, I'd say that, yes, establishing yourself, you do have to be motivated and, and prepared to sort of send a lot of emails uh, to get your foot in the door. But once you do prove yourself, uh, you know, you you will get more offers for work. Uh, and also, you know, your services will probably be uh, suggested to other people, uh, you know, which can also open up new uh, new possibilities, especially in, uh, you know, quite a small pool um, of English speaking journalists as we are in, uh, in Paris. No, absolutely. I guess that's a key for up and coming aspiring uh, football freelancers uh, like uh, me and others as well. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in, um, do you manage to enjoy football as a leisure activity now? Or do you kind of get football overload during the week and so your appetite for it kind of diminishes? No, my, I mean, football has always been my life, uh, you know, and I do enjoy playing it where, where possible. Uh, otherwise, sports-wise, you know, I, I quite often go running. Um, but, you know, that's pretty much all we can do really uh, in these uh, COVID times. But uh, no, I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't really ever sort of switch off from football or stop thinking about it uh, that much, you know, maybe a couple of hours uh, a day at the end of the day if I'm watching like a series with uh, my girlfriend or something like that. But uh, no, generally, you know, football's always there playing a daily role. Um, but I do welcome the, the opportunity to sort of play it and move away from just sort of like watching it. The one thing I would say is, that when you're working in something that you've been, you know, a fan of, um, uh, you know, and it, it really is your passion, uh, you know, it can quite often become a bit of a grind, uh, you know, once it becomes your job, you know, I I won't look forward to every match that I'm covering in the same way that I used to, uh, you know, live for, live for live football when I was younger, and you know, tune into as many games as I could. Uh, you know, now it's kind of a bit of a chore to have to watch, uh, you know, five games in a week, that kind of thing. Uh, two more questions then. Um, sorry if this is a bit of a general basic uh, question, uh, but what would your key piece of advice be uh, to uh, football, uh, so recently graduated people looking to get into football journalism? Uh, I'd say to be patient, 
you know, don't be disheartened that there aren't too many opportunities out there at the moment, you know, because it is a difficult period uh, with COVID, uh, you know, be motivated, uh, you know, sort of take the initiative, you know, look for opportunities, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere that you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, try and try and find a niche for yourself because if you can find something that you can do that not many that not that many people are doing uh you know you immediately uh you know give yourself added value um i'd, I'd also say as well that i mean i assume if you know people have done the studies there they are already you know committed to this idea of becoming a football journalist but i think a lot of people have to realize that becoming a journalist of any sort uh, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice, a lot of discipline, uh, you know, a willingness uh, to, you know, put your career first uh, over certain things, particularly a social life. So, you know, I'd say that it's it's important to be all in, uh, you know, when you're trying to establish yourself in the journalism world, because if you're just sort of waiting for somebody to open the door to you for an opportunity, as opposed to you forcing the door open, you know, you're going to be waiting a long time. So, you know, you really have to push the matter as, as much as you can, you know, almost to the point where you annoy people uh, by constantly being in touch, you know, hound those opportunities, uh, you know, and eventually that sort of, uh, you know, willingness, uh, you know, will, will pay off uh, in, in certain opportunities. Uh, Aki, uh, go for it. Uh, unmute yourself and uh, ask uh, a question. Hi, John. So I'm from a STEM background, uh, and you know, but as Louis and Alfie would attest, I have written quite extensively for our university newspaper and other outlets. Uh, would you say it's still possible for me to get into football journalism if I wanted to? Yeah, I mean, I d you know, I don't think that there's ever um, the you know a closed door to you know, to, to, to getting into journalism. I, I think it's just a question of sort of how much you're willing to do, uh, you know, in order to, to establish yourself. It does take time. I mean, I've got uh, a friend of mine at the moment who's in his early 40s, uh, you know, who ha doesn't have a journalistic uh, background sort of in his career, who's recently been studying uh, to go into journalism. Uh, and, you know, he, he's been asking me similar questions. And the thing that I would say is, you know, there's, there's never any... Uh, uh, you know, sort of any age limit to, to start, you can you can become a football journalist uh, at any time in your life. It's just, um, you know, I think that you have to give it uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, you know, and, and obviously if you've got, uh, you know, a lot of varied uh, articles that you can show people of, uh, of high quality, uh, you know, once you build up that dossier and start getting sort of a variety of different publications in it, uh, you know, you'll find uh, opportunities easier to uh, easier to come by. I don't believe that the uh, you know the door is closed to anyone in terms of opportunities to to break into to journalism. It's just unfortunately quite a, an oversaturated um, you know market, and obviously at this difficult time with with COVID. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there struggling to, to find opportunities. And I just hope that not too many um, of you get disheartened by the fact that, uh, you know, there's, you know, long periods without, uh, you know, possible opportunities. Thank you very much. Uh, I think, uh, oh, oh, yeah, Nav, go for it, mate. Um, hello, John. Thanks uh, so much for the interview. It was really insightful. So I don't come from the UK or in fact from any Western country and I'm completely fluent in French and English. And I, I was just wondering, do you agree that um, people from a non-Western background um, would struggle uh, much to, to get into um, any French um, sports? or in fact football media outlet or english football media outlet i just don't feel like there are a lot of um non-europeans or non-north americans who even get there would you agree or is there a change and is there less of a um of a uh, is, is the football journalism industry being becoming more open or do you think that often the um japanese football correspondents or the um, or the Indians or maybe the, the Brazilians often end up staying in their own countries rather than moving to the UK or France? No, I mean, I think that, you know, there 
the the you know the market is reasonably open. I mean, I've got I've got an Indian friend who's actually based in Belgium. Uh, you know, he writes for a variety of people, including Forbes. Uh, you know, so I think that you know the opportunities are definitely there. It just depends on the the country. Uh, you know, sort of where you base yourself. Uh, you know, that that's all part of the the niche that I was talking about earlier. Because if you can find uh, some way to be somewhere where there's, you know, uh, an emerging story like I had with PSG, uh, you know, and, and you sort of can put yourself in a position where you can provide something that, uh, you know, quite a lot of other people can't, uh, you know, like I could uh, about PSG and French football in English. Um, with regards to France as a potential market uh, for aspiring journalists, France, to me, see, I mean, I, I am a registered journalist over here in France, but I'm very different to a lot of people in that I didn't study specifically journalism. Basically, in the French education system, you know, if you want to be a journalist, you go to journalist school. You, it's very difficult to establish yourself in uh, French speak, French language journalism if you have not gone to a, a specific school to learn the trade. Uh, you know, the, the French are very... Uh, uh, very specific like that, which can be quite frustrating because for me, <clears throat> you know, I sort of managed to, to, to pull together a lot of different elements uh, over time to create my profile. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're, uh, for example, a friend of mine who's studying like a master's in the UK at the moment, but he is French, uh, you know, he had to go through years of formation uh, at journalism school in France. He's doing this additional master's in the UK, and then he will come back to France to look for a job uh, in journalism. Uh, you know, and the only thing that's going to make him stand out um, above the other candidates for similar positions is the fact that he's decided to go abroad, uh, do a little bit of studying, uh, and then come back. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that it's I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it unique, but I'd say that it's very. Uh, very rigid the the system in france perhaps uh, too much so i think a lot of aspects of french life particularly relating to work uh, you know really need modernizing and i, I hope that uh, you know in the future the more people uh, you know not necessarily from french backgrounds will be considered for for positions because they add a lot uh, you know and i'd say that french football journalism in particular is at a very low ebb right now. Uh, there's a lot of things that I see in it that I don't like. Uh, there's a lot of plagiarism, for example. People talk about L'Equipe uh, you know, in quite glowing terms because it's one of the most recognized publications uh, in France. Yet, it, you know, I had, an, I had a, an incident a couple of months ago where I had an exclusive interview with Mitchell Becker and the quotes that I put out in our article wound up uh, in a L'Equipe article with no, uh, no mention of the fact that he was speaking to CBS Sports. And when I challenged L'Equipe about it, you know, no one came back to me. There was no apology, that sort of thing. Nobody owning up to the fact that one of their journalists had plagiarized. Uh, you know, and that's not an isolated incident. This happens quite a lot. So I'd say, you know, to be careful um, about the sort of journalistic environments that you're looking at, uh, you know, because there are some where standards are slipping majorly at the moment in France, unfortunately, uh, is, uh, is, is one of those. I think if you, you know, if you have the quality, uh, you know, and you do things the, the right way, your, you know, your, your discipline will ultimately sort of win out uh, over a lot of these people who are very lazy uh, about the way that they source their stories. Yeah, uh, Nav, uh, if you want to uh, ask one. Uh, yeah, so yeah, just about that. Um, so I I lived in a French-speaking uh, country, so I used to follow all of the um, Eurosport, L'Equipe, uh, Canal Plus, um, TF, and all the the football coverage. And I completely agree because they they had. Even then, there were talks about how much plagiarism there was uh, between, especially the, the bigger institutions, so such as uh, L'Equipe, as you said. And I was more looking at, for example, um, in France, I know that they care a lot about AFCON, which sometimes the UK doesn't so much. For example, Canal Plus has uh, an exclusive um, 
the coverage of Afghan, which I've already looked at and I've looked and I've talked to journalists who have done that. Um, would you say that even for these specialized coverages where they do actually take non-Western um, uh, journalists, they try to get journalists who have gone through these uh, Ecole de Journalisme, um, through Sciences Po and uh, these the specialized schools, so then they maybe become more open towards whichever system um, of journalism they grew through, uh, maybe in their native countries or through the UK? I mean, I think that these kind of tournaments, uh, you know, are very, very good uh, for offering, you know, opportunities for new journalists to, to sort of make their breakthrough. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who's based in Algeria, <clears throat> and I think he was studying in Canada uh, and basically returned to Algeria to start carving out a career for himself in uh, journalism. And sort of over the years, he's managed to, uh, you know, put himself in quite a good position in, in his home country. Uh, for covering the the Algerian national team, and that all started out, uh, you know, through him sort of following the team and writing about the team, uh, you know, sort of off of his own back, and then getting offered uh, the the opportunity to you know to follow them uh, in uh, in these kind of tournaments. Uh, you know, once he impressed at that first one, uh, you know, it's sort of become his uh, his career now, and I can see him doing like videos. Uh, you know, educating people on the, you know, the the, the footballing background, which is uh, which is really cool. I mean, I don't think that people, uh, you know, the, you know, people who don't have um, sort of an academic journalistic background will just be completely rejected out of hand. I just think that people like their lives to be made as easy as possible. So if they're looking at somebody's CV and they just see, uh, you know, a, an institution that they're familiar with, you know, they'll quite often go for that. It's not a reflection on the person who's applying for the job. It's a reflection on the person who's sort of taking the applications. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, France is in major need of overhaul um, in terms of how they, uh, you know, select people for their jobs. Uh, you know, the, it's the process has been very, very lazy. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of um, seedy and shady behaviour that's been covered up over a long period of time uh, within certain French journalistic institutions. And we're just seeing some of that come to the surface now. Uh, for example, recently with the, um, the, the allegations against Pierre Menez, which appear pretty damning, uh, you know, he may well find himself sacked from, from Canal Plus and he's been sort of the most recognisable um, French football journalist for a long period of time. And then you've got Alexandre Ruiz as well, who's recently been let go by BN. And although people thought he was branching out on his own into Twitch, it's actually turned out that his behaviour um, had raised a lot of concerns within uh, the BN hierarchy for, for quite a long period of time. So, you know, I'd say that at this moment in time, it's, you know, quite a, it's quite an interesting case study, uh, you know, the development of journalism, because it's clearly in need of, uh, of new blood, uh, you know, and if you do have, uh, you know, sort of uh, a, a bit of a journalistic experience uh, and you speak and write French, uh, you know, I do think that there could be opportunities opening up. Uh, you know, and perhaps with uh, the Africa Cup of Nations coming up, it's a good opportunity to potentially uh, launch yourself if, uh, if if that's something that you're looking at trying to do. Uh, yeah, no, uh, one more. I'll go for it. Yeah, um, no, I'm just playing. What do you think about all these allegations about um, why Stéphane Guy had to leave Canal Plus and um, obviously, as you said, Pierre Menes had to just leave? Uh, uh, he will probably be sacked. Um, is the... the all the reasons why they were sad, things that have that that were that were usual in the in the French journalism industry, and it's just starting to get picked out now. Or are they things that shouldn't happen and wouldn't normally happen, but maybe it happened because they they started getting at ease with this environment where they were just never where they thought they could do anything without. Uh, any consequences? Yeah, I definitely think complacency is a major factor in this. Uh, you know, I do think that Menes, to a large extent, felt uh, you know pretty untouchable. I mean, I think he still feels untouchable now. Uh, if you look at some of the stuff that he said recently after being challenged on the topic, 
you know, it's quite shocking that he said that, you know, he would sort of behave the same way to, uh, you know, to a, to a male journalist as he would to a female. Um, you know, I think that the French way of thinking uh, is very archaic. I think the sacking of Stéphane Guy, uh, who you mentioned, was, uh, you know, it's just an absolute nonsense. Um, and, uh, you know, I do welcome uh, you know the, the you know this sort of information coming to light about the likes of Menes, the likes of Ruiz, uh, you know because it's something that you know I think really has to be addressed because this this sort of behaviour can't be acceptable and unfortunately there seems to be a lot of it in France. Uh, there's the ongoing investigation, the ethics investigation of the French Football Federation as well, uh, you know about uh, misconduct, um, you know and there's even uh, the the cover up as well of the. Uh, the uh, the coach uh, accused of uh, of pedophilia in um, the in the youth ranks. So you know, obviously, all of this is is very very shocking, uh, and just goes to show you know how much um, the the journalistic environment is in need of uh, change and overhaul. You know, I think that too many people got complacent. Uh, you know, they were in their comfort zone for far too long. Uh, you know, and it results in them um, feeling like they're untouchable and, and behaving in uh, in the way that we've seen from the likes of Menes. And I'm sure that Menes and Ruiz won't be the last stories to come to light. You know, it's just a question of you know some of the uh, some of the journalists out there, whether they're female or, or whether they're male. Uh, you know, just having the uh, having the courage to to speak up and, and say that you know there's been unacceptable behaviour in the past. Uh, you know, in order for, for these kind of things to be addressed, because it seems like a lot of these publications and TV channels want to try and cover this kind of thing up uh, where where possible. You know, I, it sounds like there's been more than one or two incidents with Menez over the years, same with Ruiz. Uh, you know, and I think it's uh, it, it's quite sickening to learn how Canal Plus has, you know, silenced some of its employees from speaking out in the... Uh, in the wake of the the recent documentary by Maria Portolano, so it's um, you know obviously it's a an interesting time for for French journalism in the fact that it could change for the better. Uh, you know you just hope that that sort of new mentality wins out uh, in what is quite a, an, an old fashioned and uh, an, an stubborn environment. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for the questions.